Welcome to the 150th podcast and the 120th as a City on a Hill Church. Pastor Mike begins a series of messages on the great book of Isaiah. This first message is an introduction to the book with emphasis on the first two verses. And it is a must experience. If there has ever been the slightest doubt in your mind that the Bible is an inspired work of God himself, this introduction will quickly dispel any of those doubts and start you, and all of us really, on a journey of discovery we'll not soon forget. Here is Pastor Michael Clark. Super excited to be able to begin our study through this great uh, prophecy of Isaiah. And if you would, please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. And this evening's message is going to be more of an uh, introduction. And so we're not planning to get very far. So don't worry if I only get through one or two verses, it doesn't mean I'm going to be in Isaiah until Jesus returns. Uh, it won't be like that every week. But because we're starting a new book, uh, I like to kind of do a little bit of background, and so we're not planning to get very far tonight, but then we'll kind of uh, pick up uh, the pace next week. So Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1, we read, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So, Isaiah, the name Isaiah means literally Yahweh or uh, the Lord is salvation. Yahweh is salvation is what his name means. Beautiful name, very strong name, uh, very similar to the name of Jesus, Yeshua. Uh, Jehovah is salvation. And uh Isaiah is an interesting book. It has 66 chapters, a very long book. It's certainly the longest book of prophecy in the Bible. Uh, and it's uh, the first of the major uh, prophets, the longer prophets that wrote in the Bible. Uh, 66 chapters, and it's broken down really into two segments or sections. The first 39 chapters deal with God's judgment, as we're going to see. His wrath, his law, and his judgment against his people, Israel or Judah, for their disobedience to him. The first 39 chapters. The second section of 27 chapters uh, is really about comfort and hope and uh, redemption and the coming of the Messiah. And so really in Isaiah, you have almost a miniature outline of the whole Bible because the Bible itself is 66 books. It's 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. And so uh, likely not a coincidence that God inspired uh, the book of Isaiah to, to be uh, broken down like this. 66 chapters, the first 39 correspond to the Old Testament law and judgment of God upon sin. And the last 27 chapters, the comfort, the hope, and the redemption of the coming Messiah. Now, Isaiah records many specific prophecies pertaining to Jesus Christ. Probably, again, more prophecies in this uh, book about Jesus than any of the other prophets. 
Uh, he talks about the birth of the Messiah, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, through the virgin, Isaiah 7, uh, 14. The virgin will conceive and be with child. Uh, he talks about the life and the ministry of the coming Messiah, the substitutionary death, the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, uh, details Jesus' life, his ministry, and his crucifixion, his death, uh, substitutionary atonement, dying for the sins of the nation, the sins of others, and then living again and, and being raised uh, after he is killed. All of this is in the book of Isaiah. So uh, Isaiah also speaks about the last days. He speaks about the tribulation period and the day of the Lord. Uh, he speaks about the coming messianic kingdom and about the eternal state, the new heavens, and the new earth. All of this is included in Isaiah's prophecy. So you could see why it's a good parallel to the Bible uh, as a whole. The book of Isaiah was written over a period of at least 40 years, the scholars say, probably longer than that, probably actually closer to 60 years was his ministry. Um, he started his prophecy approximately 740 or 739 BC uh, under the uh, reign of uh, Uzziah, the king of, Is uh, the king of Judah, and he prophesied at least through 681 BC, where the uh, son of the Assyrian king Sennacherib named Asarhaddon uh, was made the king of Assyria. And we know from history that that took place upon Sennacherib's death in 639 BC. So Isaiah was still ministering at that time. And so this is a very long life. It's a very full life. He uh, uh, ministered during the reign of four kings, more than really any other prophet in the Bible, four different kings of Judah. He was uh, their advisor and their prophet to the kings uh, of Judah. There are many direct quotes from Isaiah in the New Testament, at least 66 direct quotes in the New Testament directly from the book of Isaiah that are quoted in the New Testament. Uh, it's quoted in 20 out of the 27 books. The book of Isaiah is quoted in 20 out of the 27 books in the New Testament. And Jesus quoted numerous times from the book of Isaiah. And so it is, it is a very rich book. And uh, it's a very exciting book, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, our study here on Wednesday evenings. So again, back in verse 1 of Isaiah 1, we read the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now, this is not Amos. It's a different Hebrew word. Amos was the name of one of the prophets of God, but he is not the son of Amos, the prophet from the book of Amos. Amos is likely, at least according to Jewish rabbinical tradition, likely the brother of King Amaziah, who was the father. King Amaziah was the father of King Uzziah. And so if indeed the rabbinical uh, Jewish writings are correct, and they probably are uh, with their history. Uh, if indeed Isaiah is the son of the brother of the king, that would make him a first cousin of King Uzziah. And so he's of the tribe of Judah. He's of the line of David, the Messianic uh, uh, family. Uh, and he is uh, the first cousin 
of the king of Judah. And so he had a very close relationship to this king, and he had a relationship, a very close relationship to all four of the kings that are mentioned here uh, in verse 1. And uh, he was a member then of the royal family. He served as a prophet of God to four successive kings, beginning with Uzziah. And he was a prophet to the southern nation of Judah and to the holy city of Jerusalem. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, this was the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, comprised the two southern tribes that made up the nation uh, or the kingdom of Judah. And of course, uh, this was the uh, messianic line. This was the line that Jesus would come through, the line of Judah. And, uh, and then there were the 10 northern tribes. The nations uh, of Israel was split uh, at one point in their history. And then you had the nation of Israel in the north. You had the nation of Judah in the south. They were often at odds with each other, often at war with each other. Um, and so he was a prophet to the southern kingdom uh, of Judah. Now, the first king here that we're going to uh, look at briefly that he is referencing is King Uzziah. Now, Uzziah, the story of, of Uzziah's life is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. If you want to flip back there, I'm going to turn there in a minute. 2 Chronicles chapter 26. But King Uzziah, as we're going to see, was a good king. He reigned for 52 years, longer than any other king in Judah's history. And uh, Judah was very prosperous under the reign of good King Uzziah. He was a righteous king. Uh, he uh, uh, encouraged the people to serve the Lord. He uh, did not tolerate uh, the idol worship in the land. Uh, he was someone who wanted to please God. Now, he sinned later in his life, as we're going to see here in a minute, because he was just a man. Uh, but Judah prospered under the reign of this good king and this good man. And no doubt Isaiah had a lot to do uh, with King Uzziah's righteous reign. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26 and verse 1, we read this concerning the record of Uzziah the king. Now all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. Verse 3 says, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecoilah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Very interesting. When you study the kings of the Old Testament, you see that refrain over and over again. If the kings were good kings and they sought God and they sought to please God, uh, God blessed them and he blessed their kingdom and he blessed the people under the kingdom of the reign of this king. Uh, if a king turned away from God and turned to worship the false gods, as was common uh, in Israel and also among some of the kings of Judah, 
that would bring God's judgment upon the nation. It would be difficult for them. They would be attacked and beaten by their enemies and so forth. But Uzziah was a good king. And it says, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. Uh, much like what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, that if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, put God first in everything, seek him first in his righteousness, then all these other things will be added unto you. So really, we can't control the circumstances of our lives. We can't control the actions of other people, but we're responsible for ourselves to seek the Lord and put God first. And as we seek God first and we put his kingdom as our priority, make it the preeminent focus of our lives, God promises that he'll take care of all of the other needs that come up in our life. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight thyself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So if you seek to please God, God will bless you. He will take care of you. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. These are spiritual laws. And so we're going to see this here with these kings as well. He was a good king. He sought the Lord. And as long as he sought the Lord, God caused him and the nation to prosper. Now, as the leader goes of the nation, so goes the people. So goes the nation. Uh, they were strong because he was a strong king. They were very strong politically. They were very strong economically. And they were very strong militarily. They had victory over their enemies. Uh, they uh, fortified the cities uh, in Judah. And they prospered uh, economically under uh, King Uzziah. Now, he was just a man, and so the Bible records his failings as well. Uh, and he did sin grievously toward the end of his reign, and he ended up paying a tremendous price, a very heavy price for his sin. He actually uh, was puffed up with pride because of his success and because of his prosperity and his power, and he decided that he wanted to go into the temple and to offer incense before God, which was forbidden to anyone except for the priests. The kings were not allowed to go into the temple and to uh, offer sacrifices. Only the priests were allowed to do this. And so uh, Uzziah uh, disobeyed God. He sinned and he was struck as a result. He was struck with leprosy. We read in verse 16 of 2 Chronicles 26, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And this was a big no-no, very clearly defined in the law of Moses that the kings were not permitted to do this. So this was pure uh, arrogance and pride, thinking that he was above the law, that he could go and do this because he was such a successful king. But nobody is above the law, and he was not above the law. And so the priests had to uh, confront him, and then he got angry when they confronted him, and uh, he was struck with leprosy by God. We read in verse 20, And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get him out, because the Lord struck him. Verse 21, King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house 
judging the people of the land. Now, the rest of the Acts of Uzziah, from first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, wrote. And so we are in the book of Isaiah, but Isaiah is the one who is being referred to here in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Uh, and, uh, and so we're going to get some more uh, about uh, Uzziah later in the book of Isaiah. But uh, needless to say, he was not the exception to the rule. He was not above the law of God, and he was smitten as a result of his disobedience. He's still recorded as a good king. He's still remembered uh, as a good king, and no doubt he was heavily influenced by the ministry of the prophet Isaiah. Now, the next king was his son, as we just read, King uh, Jotham. This was Uzziah's son. He was a good king. He was also faithful to the Lord, and he was prosperous as a king. Now, when Uzziah was struck with leprosy, and he had to be isolated because leprosy was very contagious, and so they couldn't uh, allow him to really be among the people. And so he was taken and put into isolation for approximately 15 years. And as he was there in isolation, he wasn't really allowed or permitted to go out among the people to rule the kingdom. And so he brought his son in, Jotham, as a co-regent with him to rule over the land. So it's one of the rare exceptions where you actually have two kings ruling at the same time. You had uh, Uzziah, who was still the king, but he was isolated because of his leprosy. And Jotham became his co-regent and became uh, also uh, a joint uh, king with him at that time until his father died. When his father died, then Jotham became the king, uh, but he really only reigned for about a year after uh, his father Uzziah had died. We read concerning Jotham in chapter 27, verse 1, Jotham was 25 years old when he became the king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerushaha, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done, although he did not enter the temple of the Lord. But still, the people acted corruptly. And that's important to note that uh, the people were already beginning to stray. They were already beginning to desire to go after other gods, the false gods of the pagan religions and the pagan gods of the nations around them. But he was a good king. He was very successful. We read in verse 6, So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. So you have that same sort of refrain as the record. He put God first. He became mighty. Why? Because he prepared his ways before the Lord. He put the Lord first. And guys, you could never go wrong when you put God first. You'll, you'll, always, you'll always succeed. Even if you seemingly fail in this life or you seemingly fail in this world, if you put God first, you'll always come out ahead. You'll always come out on top because it's better to please God than to worry about pleasing man. And this king was a good king. Uh, he followed after the Lord. Now, the next king, who was his son, is King Ahaz. And King Ahaz was a wicked king. We read this concerning Ahaz in chapter 28, verse 1. 
Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, as his father David had done. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and made molded images for the Baals, or the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and he burned his children in the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and he burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And so this king departed from his father and his grandfather's heritage, and he turned and he went after other gods. Not only did he go after the other gods and he made uh, images of, of the other gods to be worshipped, but then he entered into human sacrifice. Not only did he uh, enter into human sacrifice, we're told that he sacrificed his own children in the fire. And so this is just an unbelievable thing. You would think, why would anybody do this? Well, uh, they were very uh, um, uh, lustful for power. And they were very superstitious. And they believed these pagan religions and these pagan gods that were worshipped. Uh, they believed that if you offered human sacrifices, you offered human blood, especially the innocent blood of a child, that you would get power from these gods. Power militarily power economically, power with uh, the, the fertility of your, of your land and your crops and so forth. And uh, so it was, it was a terrible thing what he did. He turned the people away from worshiping Yahweh or Jehovah, the Holy One of Israel. And because he was a wicked king, he brought judgment upon the people. Because as goes the leader, so goes the nation. And that is very true throughout history. When you have good, godly men and women in leadership of a nation or of a city or of a state, you have blessings that come upon that nation or upon that people. When you have wicked leaders, you have difficulty and trials and, and troubles and calamities and catastrophe that comes against you. It's just, uh, it's a law that cannot be broken. And so he... Uh, uh, brought judgment upon the nation. He suffered numerous military defeats. Even though he was wealthy, he had inherited, inherited tremendous wealth from his father and his grandfather uh, and, and a lot of power, uh, but it, he turned away from God and he brought judgment upon himself. They were defeated militarily. Uh, they lost many of the walled cities throughout Judah to the Assyrians, who uh, had conquered the northern tribe of Israel in 722 BC. Uh, then the Assyrians, after they conquered and they carried uh, the ten northern tribes of Israel away into captivity, then the Assyrians came to the southern tribe of Judah and began to besiege uh, and, and, uh, and attack cities in Judah. And so many of the walled cities in Judah fell to the enemies of God. At one point, 200,000 women and children were actually taken captive by the nation of Israel uh, before Israel fell, and they were carried away to the north uh, as a result of, again, this king's wickedness. So he brought judgment upon uh, his own people. Now, uh, did he repent? Did he turn back to God? Absolutely not. The record is that he just continued to go headlong 
uh, after apostasy and idol worship. We read in verse 22 of 2 Chronicles 28. Now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. That is, that King Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which he had defeated him, or which had defeated him rather, saying, because of the gods of the kings of Syria, uh, because the gods of the kings of Syria help them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. And so even though he had suffered calamity, he'd suffered militarily, uh, he'd suffered economically, he didn't turn back to the God of his fathers. He just doubled down on worshiping the false gods. As a matter of fact, you see his reasoning, his logic. He says that he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus uh, because they had defeated him. So he thought, well, if the gods of the kings of Syria help them, I will sacrifice to them and maybe they will help me. And of course, uh, it did not turn out well uh, for Ahaz. Now, the fourth king is a good king. And remember, these are all kings that Isaiah ministered to and that his prophecy was written during their reign and, and during their, their kingdoms. Uh, and so the fourth king was a good king. This is King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the son of Ahaz. And he was a, a righteous king. Now, chapters uh, 36 through 39 in the book of Isaiah, which we'll get to you know, down the road, um, speak about Hezekiah and about the Assyrians coming to besiege Jerusalem and how God delivered uh, Jerusalem and delivered Judah from this massive army, this powerful army of the Assyrians that were on their doorstep. Uh, and, and the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers and just basically obliterated their army to where Judah didn't even have to fight. They didn't have to, they couldn't have, they couldn't have def defended themselves against this army. But they cried out to God. Hezekiah, uh, at the, uh, encouragement of the prophet Isaiah, recorded for us in Isaiah chapters 36 through 39, he sought the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He pleaded with the Lord as the king. He humbled himself. The nation of Judah humbled themselves before God and God delivered them from a massive army, from a massive powerful enemy that they never could have defeated on their own. And so Hezekiah uh, was a wonderful king, a godly man. We read concerning Hezekiah in chapter 29 of 2 Chronicles, verse 1. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Remember, his father had shut down the temple. 
his father Ahaz had shut the temple down, shut down the house of the Lord and cut up all of the uh, articles that were used in God's house. Uh, and, and so he's now restoring all of this. So one of the first things he, he does as a new king, he opens the doors of the house of the Lord and he repaired them. Verse four, then he brought in the priests and the Levites and he gathered them in the east square and he said to them, hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. This would have been the stuff that Ahaz had brought in to worship the false gods. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him. They have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your eyes. Verse 9, For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. Good king, turning back to God, and God is going to bless the nation of Judah as a result. It's the same pattern over and over again. If the king is righteous and the leader is good, then God blesses the nation and blesses uh, his kingdom and his reign. Hezekiah uh, came in and immediately began to uh, bring in reforms, uh, to institute political reforms, to restore uh, the worship of God, to restore the temple of God, the priesthood, the Levites, uh, to restore the sacrificial systems, the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Uh, he began to restore all of the festivals that were uh, ordered and commanded and prescribed by God in the law of Moses that the kings were supposed to do this, the uh, different festivals of Israel. And uh, he actually uh, reinstated uh, the Passover and the celebration of the Feast of Passover like no other king before him uh, had done. And so he turned the nation back to God. He began to punish wickedness and he began to wipe out uh, idolatry and those who are worshiping the other gods that his father uh, had worshiped and brought in. He was encouraging and he was promoting obedience to God's commandments and to God's law and to his ordinances. Uh, he was a righteous king. Now, his son, whose name uh, is Manasseh, now Manasseh is not mentioned in Isaiah as being one of the kings that Isaiah ministered to, uh, just the other four kings that we just looked at. But Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, uh, was actually the most vile and wicked king in all of Judah's history. And so you just, you just don't quite understand why people do what they do. You know, you think that they would learn. But uh, then again, you know, we're, we're probably not much different ourselves than these, these guys. Uh, why do we do a lot of things that we do? We know better. And, uh, and so we, we really can't cast stones, but the record is here for us to learn from. And Manasseh 
was a terribly wicked king. He took the nation of Judah into wholesale pagan worship and idolatry and human sacrifice. Uh, he put the prophets of God to death. Uh, he, he killed them. And so uh, according to tradition, he murdered Isaiah. He's the one that killed Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah didn't die a natural death according to the uh, traditions and the, uh, the non-biblical history of the Jews. But he uh, killed Isaiah according to tradition by tying him between two wooden posts or poles and sawing him in half while he was alive to make an example of what would happen if you tried to worship God uh, anymore. And so it is very likely, uh, again, according to the Jewish tradition, that this is the one who was referred to in the book of Hebrews when it's talking about the Old Testament saints who suffered uh, for God's sake in Hebrews chapter 11. I'll read to you here real quick. Hebrews 11 verse 35 we read, the women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. And so it's believed that the author of Hebrews is referring to what was known among the Jews what happened to Isaiah under the reign of the evil King Manasseh, he was sawn in half uh, for his faith. They were sawn in two. They were tempted or tested. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and in caves of the earth. And so um, we don't we don't know for sure because the Bible doesn't tell us that that's what happened. But it is it is a very strong possibility uh, that Isaiah was martyred, that he didn't die a natural death and uh, li live out his years on the earth. His life was cut short. And the Bible says that all who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so it shouldn't surprise us when various trials and fiery trials assault us as Christians. It should not confound us. It shouldn't surprise us. Um, there are many godly men and women who have suffered greatly, even suffered to death for their faith in God and their faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, Jesus said in this world, uh, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so we know that uh, this world is not all that there is. It's not the end. Even if we were to be martyred and lose our lives for uh, our witness and our testimony for Jesus Christ, the Bible says we will have a better resurrection. Those who are martyred for Jesus will have a better resurrection in eternity uh, because of their sacrifice here for him now. So back to Isaiah chapter 1. <clears throat> and again, in verse 1, <clears throat> And I'm just going to read 18 verses here so that you kind of get the context of this first prophecy. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, 
Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward, or they have backslidden. Verse 5. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so uh, this, is, this is a great kind of introduction here in Isaiah chapter 1 and kickoff uh, of, of what this message is going to be the, to the nation of Israel. It really is a corrective uh, sort of a, of a book to uh, the children of Israel there in Judah. And, uh, and God uh, is rebuking them. God is calling them out for their wickedness and for their disobedience, their rebellion and their sin. And yet he's calling them to salvation. He's calling them to come back to him and to return, uh, as it were, to their first love. We're going to get into more of this, uh, what we just read next week, but I just wanted to get the overview there uh, this evening. 
Now, verse 2, again, says this. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Apparently, at this point, when Isaiah was writing this, and, and it was perhaps uh, under King Ahaz's reign when he wrote this prophecy because of the description, um, that it is uh, uh, possible that they were uh, basically saying, well, since no one else is listening to me, the king's not listening to me, the people aren't listening to me, uh, Isaiah says, I'm going to talk to the heavens. I'm going to shout to the heavens and to the earth because my people are not listening to my voice. Uh, and so he says, hear, O heavens, and all the host of heaven would be included there, all the angels and the angelic realm, uh, and give ear, O earth. Since Judah wouldn't listen to God, uh, God has Isaiah crying out uh, to the heavens to hear this message. He says, I have nourished and brought up children and they have rebelled against me. Uh, this is a uh, tragedy of Israel's legacy. Uh, God says, I've nourished you. I've brought you up as children, as my own children. And if you look at the history of the nation of Israel, uh, there was never a people like Israel that God called unto himself and, and how God worked with Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years to try and bring a people to himself so that they could know uh, the God who created the heavens and the earth. All the other pagans were worshiping false gods. They were worshiping demons and devils. And, and, and yet God uh, called a man. He called Abram and called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, called him out of the idolatry of Babylon and called him to a land, he says, which I will show you a land which will be flowing with milk and honey that I will give to your descendants after you for an everlasting, for an eternal possession. And he took Abraham and he started with Abraham and, and called out the nation of Israel through the man Abraham. He then uh, preserved the nation when they went into Egypt for 400 years into a foreign land under a foreign king, the Pharaoh, uh, during the famine in Jacob's day. God preserved and blessed the nation of Israel for 400 years. They prospered. They were so prolific in, in uh, Egypt that the Egyptians began to become threatened uh, by the power and the strength and the numbers of the uh, Israelites. And that was God's blessing upon the nation of Israel. Uh, the Pharaoh then tried to uh, kill all the baby boys and was basically planning to eradicate uh, the nation of Israel through genocide. If you kill all the baby boys in 50 or 100 years, you won't have any people left. They're, all the girls are going to marry Egyptian men. They're going to have Egyptian kids. And that would be the end of the nation of Israel. And so uh, God raised up a man. He raised up Moses who would come and who would deliver God's people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, bringing the judgments of God down with power in the eyes of everyone, in the, in the eyes of Pharaoh, in the eyes of the Egyptians, and in the eyes of his people Israel to show his love for Israel. And he took them out of the bondage of the slavery of Egypt and he brought them uh, into 
the wilderness. He sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness of Sinai. Their shoes didn't ever wear out. They had manatee every day uh, that was there. All they had to do was go out and collect the manna. They had food. They had water that came forth from the rocks. And God provided for them. He had a cloud to cover them uh, by the heat of the day so they weren't burned with the sun. And he brought a pillar of fire by night so that they would be safe and they'd have light and have warmth to be protected during the cold nights uh, there in the Sinai Peninsula in the wilderness for 40 years. God took care of his people, the children of Israel, because he loved them. Then God raised up the man Joshua, and Joshua took Israel across the Jordan River to conquer the land of promise, or the promised land, the land that God promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And it was a land truly that was flowing with milk and honey. God says, you're going to go in and you're going to eat from food that you didn't plant. You're going to live in houses that you didn't build and dwell in cities that you have not built. Because I'm giving this to you. This is the promised land. And so God was always there fulfilling his promises to Israel. His covenantal promises. His love for his children. They were his children. Israel. For 400 years, God ruled over Israel through the judges. And uh, really, Israel was initially, as a government, it was a theocracy. And a theocracy is a government that is ruled by God. Theos is God, and the uh, autocratic or the ocracy would speak of the government. And he ruled over his people, a theocracy. Now, he used, typically, he had a man in, in place. It was, you know, either Abraham, or it was Moses, or it was Joshua, or it was one of the judges. Uh, and God worked through uh, the judges, or through the, the people that he put in charge, and God was the, the king. God was the ruler over Israel. They didn't have a king like the other nations. But under the prophecy of Samuel and the, and the time when Samuel was the judge, the people came to Samuel and said, give us a king like the nations around us. They were not content to have God ruling over them. They wanted a man to rule over them, just like all of the other pagan nations. And that was really uh, kind of uh, the beginning of of their downfall, really, if you look at their long history, because they no longer wanted God to be uh, their their king ruling over them. Uh, God was still merciful. He gave them what they asked for. He told Samuel, don't be offended, Samuel. They're not uh, mad at you. They're mad at me. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. He said, they are rejecting me. Give them a king. And so Samuel, of course, ordained and anointed King Saul, who became the first uh, king of Israel. Uh, after Saul king, King David, who was a man after God's own heart. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, who wrote the majority of the psalms in our Bible. David, certainly not a perfect man. He was a human, but he was a godly man. He was a righteous man. He loved God and he uh, sought the Lord with his whole heart. Under David, the 12 tribes of Israel were a united nation. They were a united kingdom under David. Uh, they dominated their enemies militarily. Uh, he ruled with a strong rule politically, and they prospered and they flourished economically under the good king David. 
Now, when David died, his son Solomon took over his kingdom, and he inherited a lot of the blessings that David had put into place. Solomon, of course, built the, the temple of God. The temple of God was uh, before that in a tabernacle, a temporary sort of a tent. And, uh, and, and David wanted to build a temple for God, but God did not allow him to. So Solomon, his son, built the temple of God. Uh, it was, you know, one of the most beautiful ancient buildings in the ancient world. It was one of the seven great ancient wonders of the world, historians tell us. And, uh, and Solomon was the most powerful and the most wealthy king in the world at that time and really in all of Israel's history uh, because he inherited the blessings from his father David. And yet Solomon, who had all of these blessings, all of this power and all of this wealth, turned away from God and began to worship other gods. He took many wives, 700 wives and concubines, uh, married them for political reasons, making political alliances with all the nations around him so that he would uh, increase trade with those nations and so that he would not go to war with those nations. And in this, he disobeyed God. God uh, commanded the kings not to multiply wives, not to multiply horses, and not to multiply gold. And yet Solomon did all the things God commanded the kings not to do. He multiplied horses, he multiplied gold, and he multiplied wives, like no king before him and really no king uh, after him. And the wives of Solomon turned Solomon away from worshiping God and turned him to worshiping idols and to worship the false gods of the pagans because they brought their pagan gods with them. They came from Egypt or they came from other places and they brought their gods with them, these wives of Solomon. And then they wanted to worship their gods in Jerusalem. So Solomon eventually gave in. He capitulated to keep his wives happy and he allowed them to build temples or to build altars to worship their gods. And that was really the introduction of pagan idolatry into the nation of Israel. Again, it came from the king. It started with the head and then it dispersed throughout the nation and really, uh, idolatry never really went away after the time of Solomon. It would kind of wane at different times under good kings, but it would always uh, come back. But God was still working with the nation of Israel. Even after the nation was divided upon Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam took the throne, uh, and then the nation, the ten northern tribes rebelled, uh, and uh, Jeroboam became the king of the ten northern tribes. They called themselves Israel. The two southern tribes became uh, the nation of Judah. It was Judah and Benjamin were the two southern tribes that uh, made up the nation of Judah. And, uh, and then there was this slow decline that led ultimately to their captivity. And ultimately, the ten northern tribes never recovered from their captivity when the Assyrians took them captive in 722 B.C., the two southern tribes in 586 BC were conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and they were dragged off into captivity for 70 years in Babylon, and Jerusalem was destroyed. It was laid waste. And so, uh, you know, God worked with these people. He worked with this nation. He was always sending them prophets. He was sending them his ministers to try and call them back to himself. And yet uh, they, in the end, they would not have him. They desired to worship the gods of the nations. Now this led to uh, this terrible practice of human sacrifice. And, you know, human sacrifice is something, guys, that still takes place around the world. I mean, we think about it, oh, this is 4,000 years ago. It was in the Bible times. 
It still happens today. As a matter of fact, Satanists who are true Satanists, they still practice human sacrifice. It's, of course, it's illegal. It's not uh, public. Uh, but uh, anybody that's ever ministered to anyone or heard a testimony of anyone that's come out of Satanism, uh, they still offer child sacrifice to Satan today, and they drink the blood of the children uh, because they get power. They believe they get power with, with Satan from offering the sacrifice of children. Uh, and so it's, it's something that's still around today. Uh, I remember when I was in Africa, when I was in Uganda, it's a terrible problem in East Africa. Human sacrifice is still uh, happening in Africa. Uh, because this is what they've, a lot of these tribal peoples, this is what they've always done. They're very primitive, uh, and they're out there in the bush away from everybody else. And there's these witch doctors and everybody's afraid of the spirits that are over this, these areas. And so they'll give their children to appease these demons or these spirits. And so human sacrifice, uh, is still taking place today, tragically. Uh, but Israel, you know, they knew better. They had God's law. They had Moses. Uh, they had the prophets. God sent them prophets. And yet they uh, still turned away from God and turned and worshipped idols and demons. It is interesting that uh, in uh, the tells, uh, the archaeological digs in northern Israel up in Dan, uh, they have found in the, in the old houses that are 3,500-year-old uh, uh, buildings that they've dug up, they've excavated, they found inside the walls of these houses in Dan, the northern tribe of Israel, babies that were encased in clay jars that were put inside the walls of the houses, these, these infants inside of jars built into the houses. That was a practice at that time to bring a blessing of these false gods upon the house. They would offer their firstborn child uh, as a sacrifice, put the baby in a jar, strangle it, put it in a jar, and then build it into the house so that they would have prosperity. This was happening in Israel uh, uh, during this time that's being recorded here for us in Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, moral decay uh, was taking place and paganism, all driven by materialism, sexual lust, sexual promiscuity. Uh, they worshipped Molech. Molech was the god of pleasure. Molech was the god that often they offered their children to as a human sacrifice. They worshipped Astareth. Astareth was the goddess of fertility or of sexual immorality and lust, uh, sexual pleasure. They worshipped the god Mammon. Mammon was the god of money or of possessions or of wealth, and that always equals power because money equals power. Uh, and so they would worship Mammon and they would worship Baal or Baal, as we read earlier. And he was the God that they believed would give them bountiful crops with their agriculture uh, and with the weather patterns to keep them from having droughts and famines. And, you know, we think of it as all superstitious today, but they really believed this at the time, that if they would offer their children to these gods or worship these gods, uh, that they would then prosper financially, they would have a better crop, or their livestock would produce more offspring, they'd have more children to work the land, and so forth. And so it was all related to materialism, it was related to pleasure, it was related to money, it was related to power, it was related to lust, it was related to sex. And guys, we're no different today in America. You know, we were a nation that God called out 
of Europe, of England. Our founding fathers came here so that they could worship God freely. The pilgrims came from uh, England so that they didn't have to capitulate to the Church of England and yield to the King of England. They wanted to worship God according to the dictates of their own heart, according to their own conscience, according to the Word of God. They came here so they'd have the freedom to worship God. They established this nation as a truly Christian nation. Our founding fathers prayerfully enshrined with prayer and fasting the Constitution and gave us uh, our rights that we have as citizens of this country, uh, primarily the right to practice our religion, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. All of these were to protect us so that we could do this, so that we could worship God without the interference of the state. When uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote about the separation of church and state, it was simply to keep the state out of the church's business, to keep the state from meddling with the church, not to separate the state from the church to say that you can't be a Christian and be in a public position of office or be a Christian publicly in the public schools or be a Christian in your workplace. That was never the, the founder's intention with the separation powers of church and state. It was so that we wouldn't become like England, where a church would control or the state would control the church or a church would control the state like in Rome. And everybody would be forced to just, you know, uh, worship in one way. And so uh, we uh, are just as guilty as Israel today. Uh, we have, as a nation have forsaken God. We are those who are as a nation not pursuing God. We're not interested in the word of God. We don't care about the things of God. Uh, we are just like Israel of old. We're in it for ourselves. We want power. We want money. We worship possessions. We worship sex and lust and glamorize all sorts of sexual promiscuity uh, in our culture. And we want prosperity. We want affluence and wealth. And so really, we're, we're, we're no different than Israel, no different than Judah was uh, at that time. And so the voice of the prophet, the cry of the prophet, is always to repent, to turn back to God, to return to Him, and to redo the things that you did at first. Come back to me, God says. Come back to your first love and do the things that you did at first, and I will heal you, and I will restore you, and I will save you. But you must agree with God. We must agree with God that we need to turn back to Him. And we can't save the United States of America. Uh, we can't save the state of California. But we can certainly put God first in our lives as the Christians who live in the United States of America, the Bible-believing Christians, the remnant, as it were, who continues to seek the Lord. And for the sake even of the small remnant, God said, uh, he left to us a very small remnant. Isaiah spoke through, uh, God spoke through Isaiah in verse 9 of chapter 1. So too, God has shown deference and mercy to our nation because of the small remnant that we still have in our country who put God first and who will not compromise, no matter what is politically correct, no matter what the popular opinion polls say, no matter what the talk show hosts are saying or what's on the media or what's in the movies or what's on the television, we will not bow to Baal. We will not turn away from God. We will continue to seek the Lord and to seek to put him first as his people. And as we do this, 
Amen. As we do this, God will bless our nation and he will bless us as individuals. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, very familiar passage. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. So you notice it's not, the charge is not to all the unbelievers out there, all the other people that are outside the church. The charge is to us, my people, who are called by my name. Do you call yourself a Christian today? That's God's name. It's Christ's name. So you're, you've got the name of Christ on you. So we now are God's people who are called by his name. And he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. This is repentance, returning, revival. They'll turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapi, California. And this evening's message is going to be more of an uh, introduction. And so we're not planning to get very far. So don't worry if I only get through one or two verses, it doesn't mean I'm going to be in Isaiah until Jesus returns. Uh, it won't be like that every week. But because we're starting a new book, uh, I like to kind of do a little bit of background. And so we're not planning to get very far tonight, but then we'll kind of uh, pick up uh, the pace next week. So Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1, we read, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, 
Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So, Isaiah, the name Isaiah means literally Yahweh or uh, the Lord is salvation. Yahweh is salvation is what his name means. Beautiful name, very strong name, uh, very similar to the name of Jesus, Yeshua. Uh, Jehovah is salvation. And uh, Isaiah is an interesting book. It has 66 chapters, a very long book. It's certainly the longest book of prophecy in the Bible. Uh, and it's uh, the first of the major uh, prophets, the longer prophets that wrote in the Bible. Uh, 66 chapters, and it's broken down really into two segments or sections. The first 39 chapters deal with God's judgment, as we're going to see. His wrath, his law, and his judgment against his people, Israel or Judah, for their disobedience to him. The first 39 chapters. The second section of 27 chapters uh, is really about comfort and hope and uh, redemption and the coming of the Messiah. And so really in Isaiah, you have almost a miniature outline of the whole Bible because the Bible itself is 66 books. It's 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. And so uh, likely not a coincidence that God inspired uh, the book of Isaiah to, to be uh, broken down like this. 66 chapters, the first 39 correspond to the Old Testament law and judgment of God upon sin. And the last 27 chapters, the comfort, the hope, and the redemption of the coming Messiah. Now, Isaiah records many specific prophecies pertaining to Jesus Christ. Probably, again, more prophecies in this uh, book about Jesus than any of the other prophets. Uh, he talks about the birth of the Messiah, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, through the virgin. Isaiah 7, uh, 14, the virgin will conceive and be with child. Uh, he talks about the life and the ministry of the coming Messiah, the substitutionary death, the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, uh, details Jesus' life, his ministry, and his crucifixion, his death, uh, substitutionary atonement, dying for the sins of the nation, the sins of others, and then living again and, and being raised uh, after he is killed. All of this is in the book of Isaiah. So uh, Isaiah also speaks about the last days. He speaks about the tribulation period and the day of the Lord. Uh, he speaks about the coming messianic kingdom and about the eternal state, the new heavens, and the new earth. All of this is included in Isaiah's prophecy. So you could see why it's a good parallel to the Bible uh, as a whole. The book of Isaiah was written over a period of at least 40 years, the scholars say, probably longer than that, probably actually closer to 60 years was his ministry. Um, he started his prophecy approximately 740 or 739 BC uh, under the uh, reign of uh, Uzziah, the king of, Is uh, the king of Judah, and he prophesied at least through 681 BC, where the uh, son of the Assyrian king Sennacherib named Asarhaddon uh, was made the king of Assyria. 
And we know from history that that took place upon Sennacherib's death in 639 BC. So Isaiah was still ministering at that time. And so this is a very long life. It's a very full life. He uh, uh, ministered during the reign of four kings, more than really any other prophet in the Bible, four different kings of Judah. He was uh, their advisor and their prophet to the kings uh, of Judah. There are many direct quotes from Isaiah in the New Testament, at least 66 direct quotes in the New Testament directly from the book of Isaiah that are quoted in the New Testament. Uh, it's quoted in 20 out of the 27 books. The book of Isaiah is quoted in 20 out of the 27 books in the New Testament. And Jesus quoted numerous times from the book of Isaiah. And so it is, it is a very rich book and uh, it's a very exciting book. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, our study here on Wednesday evenings. So again, back in verse 1 of Isaiah 1, we read the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now, this is not Amos. It's a different Hebrew word. Amos was the name of one of the prophets of God, but he is not the son of Amos, the prophet from the book of Amos. Amos is likely, at least according to Jewish rabbinical tradition, likely the brother of King Amaziah, who was the father, King Amaziah was the father of King Uzziah. And so if indeed the rabbinical uh, Jewish writings are correct, and they probably are uh, with their history, uh, if indeed Isaiah is the son of the brother of the king, that would make him a first cousin of King Uzziah. And so he's of the tribe of Judah. He's of the line of David, the Messianic uh, uh, family. Uh, and he is uh, the first cousin of the king of Judah. And so he had a very close relationship to this king. And he had a relationship, a very close relationship to all four of the kings that are mentioned here uh, in verse 1. And uh, he was a member then of the royal family. He served as a prophet of God to four successive kings, beginning with Uzziah, and he was a prophet to the southern nation of Judah and to the holy city of Jerusalem. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, this was the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, comprised the two southern tribes that made up the nation uh, or the kingdom of Judah. And of course, uh, this was the uh, messianic line. This was the line that Jesus would come through, the line of Judah. And, uh, and then there were the ten northern tribes. The nations uh, of Israel was split uh, at one point in their history. And then you had the nation of Israel in the north. You had the nation of Judah in the south. They were often at odds with each other, often at war with each other. Um, and so he was a prophet to the southern kingdom uh, of Judah. Now, the first king here that we're going to uh, look at briefly that he is referencing is King Uzziah. 
Now, Uzziah, the story of, of Uzziah's life is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. If you want to flip back there, I'm going to turn there in a minute. 2 Chronicles chapter 26. But King Uzziah, as we're going to see, was a good king. He reigned for 52 years, longer than any other king in Judah's history. And uh, Judah was very prosperous under the reign of good King Uzziah. He was a righteous king. Uh, he uh, uh, encouraged the people to serve the Lord. He uh, did not tolerate uh, the idol worship in the land. Uh, he was someone who wanted to please God. Now, he sinned later in his life, as we're going to see here in a minute, because he was just a man. Uh, but Judah prospered under the reign of this good king and this good man. And no doubt Isaiah had a lot to do uh, with King Uzziah's righteous reign. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26 and verse 1, we read this concerning the record of Uzziah the king. Now all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. Verse 3 says, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecoila of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Very interesting. When you study the kings of the Old Testament, you see that refrain over and over again. If the kings were good kings and they sought God and they sought to please God, uh, God blessed them and he blessed their kingdom and he blessed the people under the kingdom of the reign of this king. Uh, if a king turned away from God and turned to worship the false gods, as was common uh, in Israel and also among some of the kings of Judah, that would bring God's judgment upon the nation. It would be difficult for them. They would be attacked and beaten by their enemies and so forth. But Uzziah was a good king. And it says, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. Uh, much like what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, that if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, put God first in everything, seek him first in his righteousness, then all these other things will be added unto you. So really, we can't control the circumstances of our lives. We can't control the actions of other people, but we're responsible for ourselves to seek the Lord and put God first. And as we seek God first and we put his kingdom as our priority, make it the preeminent focus of our lives, God promises that he'll take care of all of the other needs that come up in our life. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight thyself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So if you seek to please God, God will bless you. He will take care of you. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. These are spiritual laws. And so we're going to see this here with these kings as well. He was a good king. He sought the Lord. And as long as he sought the Lord, God caused him and the nation to prosper. Now, as the leader goes of the nation, so goes the people. So goes the nation. 
they were strong because he was a strong king. They were very strong politically. They were very strong economically. And they were very strong militarily. They had victory over their enemies. Uh, they uh, fortified the cities uh, in Judah. And they prospered uh, economically under uh, King Uzziah. Now, he was just a man, and so the Bible records his failings as well, uh, and he did sin grievously toward the end of his reign, and he ended up paying a tremendous price, a very heavy price for his sin. He actually uh, was puffed up with pride because of his success and because of his prosperity and his power, and he decided that he wanted to go into the temple and to offer incense before God, which was forbidden to anyone except for the priests. The kings were not allowed to go into the temple and to uh, offer sacrifices. Only the priests were allowed to do this. And so uh, Uzziah uh, disobeyed God. He sinned, and he was struck as a result. He was struck with leprosy. We read in verse 16 of 2 Chronicles 26, But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And this was a big no-no, very clearly defined in the law of Moses that the kings were not permitted to do this. So this was pure uh, arrogance and pride, thinking that he was above the law, that he could go and do this because he was such a successful king. But nobody is above the law, and he was not above the law. And so the priests had to uh, confront him, and then he got angry when they confronted him, and uh, he was struck with leprosy by God. We read in verse 20, And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get him out, because the Lord struck him. Verse 21, King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, wrote. And so we are... In the book of Isaiah, but Isaiah is the one who is being referred to here in Second Chronicles chapter 26, uh, and uh, and so we're going to get some more uh, about uh, Uzziah later in the book of Isaiah. But uh, needless to say, he was not the exception to the rule. He was not above the law of God, and he was smitten as a result of his disobedience. He's still recorded as a good king. He's still remembered uh, as a good king, and no doubt he was heavily influenced by the ministry of the prophet Isaiah. Now, the next king was his son, as we just read, King uh, Jotham. This was Uzziah's son. He was a good king. He was also faithful to the Lord, and he was prosperous as a king. Now, when Uzziah was struck with leprosy, and he had to be isolated because leprosy was very contagious, and so they couldn't uh, allow him to really be among the people. And so he was taken and put into isolation 
for approximately 15 years. And as he was there in isolation, he wasn't really allowed or permitted to go out among the people to rule the kingdom. And so he brought his son in, Jotham, as a co-regent with him to rule over the land. So it's one of the rare exceptions where you actually have two kings ruling at the same time. You had uh, Uzziah, who was still the king, but he was isolated because of his leprosy. And Jotham became his co-regent and became uh, also uh, a joint uh, king with him at that time until his father died. When his father died, then Jotham became the king, uh, but he really only reigned for about a year after uh, his father Uzziah had died. We read concerning Jotham in chapter 27, verse 1, Jotham was 25 years old when he became the king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerushaha, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done, although he did not enter the temple of the Lord. But still, the people acted corruptly. And that's important to note that uh, the people were already beginning to stray. They were already beginning to desire to go after other gods, the false gods of the pagan religions and the pagan gods of the nations around them. But he was a good king. He was very successful. We read in verse 6, So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. So you have that same sort of refrain as the record. He put God first. He became mighty. Why? Because he prepared his ways before the Lord. He put the Lord first. And guys, you could never go wrong when you put God first. You'll, you'll, always, you'll always succeed. Even if you seemingly fail in this life or you seemingly fail in this world, if you put God first, you'll always come out ahead. You'll always come out on top because it's better to please God than to worry about pleasing man. And this king was a good king. Uh, he followed after the Lord. Now, the next king, who was his son, is King Ahaz. And King Ahaz was a wicked king. We read this concerning Ahaz in chapter 28, verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, as his father David had done. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for the Baals or the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and he burned his children in the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel." And he sacrificed and he burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And so this king departed from his father and his grandfather's heritage and he turned and he went after other gods. Not only did he go after the other gods and he made uh, images of, of the other gods to be worshipped, but then he entered into human sacrifice. Not only did he uh, enter into human sacrifice, we're told that he sacrificed his own children in the fire. 
And so this is just an unbelievable thing. You would think, why would anybody do this? Well, uh, they were very uh, um, uh, lustful for power. And they were very superstitious. And they believed these pagan religions and these pagan gods that were worshipped, uh, they believed that if you offered human sacrifices, you offered human blood, especially the innocent blood of a child, that you would get power from these gods. Power militarily, power economically, power with uh, the, the fertility of your, of your land and your crops and so forth. And uh, so it was, it was a terrible thing what he did. He turned the people away from worshiping Yahweh or Jehovah, the Holy One of Israel. And because he was a wicked king, he brought judgment upon the people. Because as goes the leader, so goes the nation. And that is very true throughout history. When you have good, godly men and women in leadership of a nation or of a city or of a state, you have blessings that come upon that nation or upon that people. When you have wicked leaders, you have difficulty and trials and, and troubles and calamities and catastrophe that comes against you. It's just, uh, it's a law that cannot be broken. And so he uh, uh, brought judgment upon the nation. He suffered numerous military defeats. Even though he was wealthy, he had inherited, inherited tremendous wealth from his father and his grandfather uh, and, and a lot of power. Uh, but it, he turned away from God and he brought judgment upon himself. They were defeated militarily. Uh, they lost many of the walled cities throughout Judah to the Assyrians who uh, had conquered the northern tribe of Israel in 722 BC. Uh, then the Assyrians, after they conquered and they carried uh, the 10 northern tribes of Israel away into captivity, then the Assyrians came to the southern tribe of Judah and began to besiege uh, and, and, uh, and attack cities in Judah. And so many of the walled cities in Judah fell to the enemies of God. At one point, 200,000 women and children were actually taken captive by the nation of Israel uh, before Israel fell, and they were carried away to the north uh, as a result of, again, this king's wickedness. So he brought judgment upon uh, his own people. Now, uh, did he repent? Did he turn back to God? Absolutely not. The record is that he just continued to go headlong uh, after apostasy and idol worship. We read in verse 22 of 2 Chronicles 28. Now, in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. That is, that King Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which he had defeated him, or which had defeated him rather, saying, because of the gods of the kings of Syria, uh, because the gods of the kings of Syria help them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. 
And so even though he had suffered calamity, he'd suffered militarily, uh, he'd suffered economically, he didn't turn back to the God of his fathers. He just doubled down on worshiping the false gods. As a matter of fact, you see his reasoning, his logic. He says that he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus uh, because they had defeated him. So he thought, well, if the gods of the kings of Syria help them, I will sacrifice to them and maybe they will help me. And of course, uh, it did not turn out well uh, for Ahaz. Now, the fourth king is a good king. And remember, these are all kings that Isaiah ministered to and that his prophecy was written during their reign and, and during their, their kingdoms. Uh, and so the fourth king was a good king. This is King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the son of Ahaz. And he was a, a righteous king. Now, chapters uh, 36 through 39 in the book of Isaiah, which we'll get to you know, down the road, um, speak about Hezekiah and about the Assyrians coming to besiege Jerusalem and how God delivered uh, Jerusalem and delivered Judah from this massive army, this powerful army of the Assyrians that were on their doorstep. Uh, and, and the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers and just basically obliterated their army to where Judah didn't even have to fight. They didn't have to, they couldn't have, they couldn't have defended themselves against this army, but they cried out to God. Hezekiah, uh, at the, uh, encouragement of the prophet Isaiah recorded for us in Isaiah chapters 36 through 39, he sought the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He pleaded with the Lord as the king. He humbled himself. The nation of Judah humbled themselves before God and God delivered them from a massive army, from a massive powerful enemy that they never could have defeated on their own. And so Hezekiah uh, was a wonderful king, a godly man. We read concerning Hezekiah in chapter 29 of 2 Chronicles verse 1. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Remember, his father had shut down the temple. His father Ahaz had shut the temple down, shut down the house of the Lord and cut up all of the uh, articles that were used in God's house. Uh, and, and so he's now restoring all of this. So one of the first things he, he does as a new king, he opens the doors of the house of the Lord and he repaired them. Verse four, then he brought in the priests and the Levites and he gathered them in the east square and he said to them, hear me, Levites. Now sanctify yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. This would have been the stuff that Ahaz had brought in to worship the false gods. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him. They have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. 
Therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your eyes. Verse 9, For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. Good king turning back to God and God is going to bless the nation of Judah as a result. It's the same pattern over and over again. If the king is righteous and the leader is good, then God blesses the nation and blesses uh, his kingdom and his reign. Hezekiah uh, came in and immediately began to uh, bring in reforms, uh, to institute political reforms, to restore uh, the worship of God, to restore the temple of God, the priesthood, the Levites, uh, to restore the sacrificial systems, the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Uh, he began to restore all of the festivals that were uh, ordered and commanded and prescribed by God in the law of Moses that the kings were supposed to do this, the uh, different festivals of Israel. And uh, he actually uh, reinstated uh, the Passover and the celebration of the Feast of Passover like no other king before him uh, had done. And so he turned the nation back to God. He began to punish wickedness and he began to wipe out uh idolatry and those who are worshiping the other gods that his father uh, had worshiped and brought in. He was encouraging and he was promoting obedience to God's commandments and to God's law and to his ordinances. Uh, he was a righteous king. Now, his son, who's named uh, is Manasseh. Now, Manasseh is not mentioned in Isaiah as being one of the kings that Isaiah ministered to, uh, just the other four kings that we just looked at. But Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, uh, was actually the most vile and wicked king in all of Judah's history. And so you just, you just don't quite understand why people do what they do. You know, you think that they would learn, but uh, then again, you know, we're, we're probably not much different ourselves than these, these guys. Uh, why do we do a lot of things that we do? We know better. And, uh, and so we, we really can't cast stones, but the record is here for us to learn from. And Manasseh was a terribly wicked king. He took the nation of Judah into wholesale pagan worship and idolatry and human sacrifice. Uh, he put the prophets of God to death. Uh, he, he killed them. And so uh, according to tradition, he murdered Isaiah. He's the one that killed Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah didn't die a natural death, death according to the uh, traditions and the, uh, the non-biblical history of the Jews. But he uh, killed Isaiah according to tradition by tying him between two wooden posts or poles and sawing him in half while he was alive to make an example of what would happen if you tried to worship God uh, anymore. And so it is very likely, uh, again, according to the Jewish tradition, that this is the one who was referred to in the book of Hebrews 
when it's talking about the Old Testament saints who suffered uh, for God's sake in Hebrews chapter 11. I'll read to you here real quick. Hebrews 11 verse 35, we read, The women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. And so it's believed that the author of Hebrews is referring to what was known among the Jews, what happened to Isaiah under the reign of the evil king Manasseh. He was sawn in half. Uh, for his faith. They were sawn in two. They were tempted or tested. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens, and in caves of the earth. And so um, we don't we don't know for sure because the Bible doesn't tell us that that's what happened, but it is it is a very strong possibility uh, that Isaiah was martyred, that he didn't die a natural death and uh, li live out his years on the earth. His life was cut short. And the Bible says that all who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so it shouldn't surprise us when various trials and fiery trials assault us as Christians. It should not confound us. It shouldn't surprise us. Um, there are many godly men and women who have suffered greatly, even suffered to death for their faith in God and their faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, Jesus said in this world, uh, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so we know that uh, this world is not all that there is. It's not the end. Even if we were to be martyred and lose our lives for uh, our witness and our testimony for Jesus Christ, the Bible says we will have a better resurrection. Those who are martyred for Jesus will have a better resurrection in eternity uh, because of their sacrifice here for him now. So back to Isaiah chapter 1. <clears throat> and again, in verse 1, <clears throat> and I'm just going to read 18 verses here so that you kind of get the context of this first prophecy. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward, or they have backslidden. Verse 5, why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. 
They have not been clothed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so uh, this, is, this is a great kind of introduction here in Isaiah chapter 1 and kickoff uh, of, of what this message is going to be the, to the nation of Israel. It really is a corrective uh, sort of a, of a book to uh, the children of Israel there in Judah. And, uh, and God uh, is rebuking them. God is calling them out for their wickedness and for their disobedience, their rebellion and their sin. And yet he's calling them to salvation. He's calling them to come back to him and to return, uh, as it were, to their first love. We're going to get into more of this, uh, what we just read next week, but I just wanted to get the overview there uh, this evening. Now, verse 2, again, says this, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Apparently, at this point, when Isaiah was writing this, and, and it was perhaps uh, under King Ahaz's reign when he wrote this prophecy because of the description, um, that it is uh, uh, possible that they were uh, basically saying, well, since no one else is listening to me, the king's not listening to me, the people aren't listening to me, uh, Isaiah says, I'm going to talk to the heavens. I'm going to shout to the heavens and to the earth because my people are not listening to my voice. Uh, and so he says, hear, O heavens, and all the host of heaven would be included there, all the angels and the angelic realm, uh, and give ear, O earth. Since Judah wouldn't listen to God, 
God has Isaiah crying out uh, to the heavens to hear this message. He says, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Uh, This is a uh, tragedy of Israel's legacy. Uh, God says, I've nourished you. I've brought you up as children, as my own children. And if you look at the history of the nation of Israel, uh, there was never a people like Israel that God called unto himself and, and how God worked with Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years to try and bring a people to himself so that they could know uh, the God who created the heavens and the earth. All the other pagans were worshiping false gods. They were worshiping demons and devils. And, and, and yet God uh, called a man. He called Abram and called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, called him out of the idolatry of Babylon and called him to a land, he says, which I will show you a land which will be flowing with milk and honey that I will give to your descendants after you for an everlasting, for an eternal possession. And he took Abraham and he started with Abraham and, and called out the nation of Israel through the man Abraham. He then uh, preserved the nation when they went into Egypt for 400 years into a foreign land under a foreign king, the Pharaoh, uh, during the famine in Jacob's day. God preserved and blessed the nation of Israel for 400 years. They prospered. They were so prolific in, in uh, Egypt that the Egyptians began to become threatened uh, by the power and the strength and the numbers of the uh, Israelites. And that was God's blessing upon the nation of Israel. Uh, the Pharaoh then tried to uh, kill all the baby boys and was basically planning to eradicate uh, the nation of Israel through genocide. If you kill all the baby boys in 50 or 100 years, you won't have any people left. They're, all the girls are going to marry Egyptian men. They're going to have Egyptian kids. And that would be the end of the nation of Israel. And so uh, God raised up a man. He raised up Moses who would come and who would deliver God's people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, bringing the judgments of God down with power in the eyes of everyone, in the eyes of Pharaoh, in the eyes of the Egyptians, and in the eyes of his people Israel to show his love for Israel. And he took them out of the bondage of the slavery of Egypt and he brought them uh, into the wilderness. He sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness of Sinai. Their shoes didn't ever wear out. They had manatee every day uh, that was there. All they had to do was go out and collect the manna. They had food. They had water that came forth from the rocks and God provided for them. He had a cloud to cover them uh, by the heat of the day so they weren't burned with the sun and he brought a pillar of fire by night so that they would be safe and they'd have light and have warmth and be protected during the cold nights Uh, there in the Sinai Peninsula in the wilderness for 40 years. God took care of his people, the children of Israel, because he loved them. Then God raised up the man Joshua. And Joshua took Israel across the Jordan River to conquer the land of promise or the promised land, the land that God promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And it was a land truly that was flowing with milk and honey. God says, you're going to go in and you're going to eat from food that you didn't plant. You're going to live in houses that you didn't build and dwell in cities that you have not built because I'm giving this to you. This is the promised land. 
And so God was always there fulfilling his promises to Israel, his covenantal promises, his love for his children. They were his children, Israel. For 400 years, God ruled over Israel through the judges. And uh, really, Israel was initially, as a government, it was a theocracy. And a theocracy is a government that is ruled by God. Theos is God, and the uh, autocratic or the theocracy would speak of the government. And he ruled over his people, a theocracy. Now, he used, typically, he had a man in, in place. It was, you know, either Abraham, or it was Moses, or it was Joshua, or it was one of the judges. Uh, and God worked through uh, the judges or through the, the people that he put in charge. And God was the, the king. God was the ruler over Israel. They didn't have a king like the other nations. But under the prophecy of Samuel and the, and the time when Samuel was the judge, the people came to Samuel and said, give us a king like the nations around us. They were not content to have God ruling over them. They wanted a man to rule over them, just like all of the other pagan nations. And that was really uh, kind of uh, the beginning of, uh, of their downfall, really, if you look at their long history, because they no longer wanted God to be uh, their, their king ruling over them. Uh, God was still merciful. He gave them what they asked for. He told Samuel, don't be offended, Samuel. They're not uh, mad at you. They're mad at me. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. He said, they are rejecting me. Give them a king. And so Samuel, of course, ordained and anointed King Saul, who became the first uh, king of Israel. Uh, after Saul king, King David, who was a man after God's own heart. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, who wrote the majority of the Psalms in our Bible. David's certainly not a perfect man. He was a human, but he was a godly man. He was a righteous man. He loved God and he uh, sought the Lord with his whole heart. Under David, the 12 tribes of Israel were a united nation. They were a united kingdom under David. Uh, they dominated their enemies militarily. Uh, he ruled with a strong rule politically, and they prospered and they flourished economically under the good king David. Now, when David died, his son Solomon took over his kingdom, and he inherited a lot of the blessings that David had put into place. Solomon, of course, built the, the temple of God. The temple of God was uh, before that in a tabernacle, a temporary sort of a tent. And, uh, and, and David wanted to build a temple for God, but God did not allow him to. So Solomon, his son, built the temple of God. Uh, it was, you know, one of the most beautiful ancient buildings in the ancient world. It was one of the seven great ancient wonders of the world, historians tell us. And, uh, and Solomon was the most powerful and the most wealthy king in the world at that time, and really in all of Israel's history, uh, because he inherited the blessings from his father David. And yet, Solomon, who had all of these blessings, all of this power, and all of this wealth, turned away from God and began to worship other gods. He took many wives, 700 wives and concubines, uh, married them for political reasons, making political alliances with all the nations around him so that he would uh, increase trade with those nations and so that he would not go to war with those nations. And in this, he disobeyed God. 
God uh, commanded the kings not to multiply wives, not to multiply horses, and not to multiply gold. And yet Solomon did all the things God commanded the kings not to do. He multiplied horses, he multiplied gold, and he multiplied wives. Like no king before him and really no king uh, after him. And the wives of Solomon turned Solomon away from worshiping God and turned him to worshiping idols and to worship the false gods of the pagans because they brought their pagan gods with them. They came from Egypt or they came from other places and they brought their gods with them, these wives of Solomon. And then they wanted to worship their gods in Jerusalem. So Solomon eventually gave in. He capitulated to keep his wives happy and he allowed them to build temples or to build altars to worship their gods. And that was really the introduction of pagan idolatry into the nation of Israel. Again, it came from the king. It started with the head and then it dispersed throughout the nation and really, uh, idolatry never really went away after the time of Solomon. It would kind of wane at different times under good kings, but it would always uh, come back. But God was still working with the nation of Israel. Even after the nation was divided upon Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam took the throne, uh, and then the nation, the ten northern tribes rebelled, uh, and uh, Jeroboam became the king of the ten northern tribes. They called themselves Israel. The two southern tribes became uh, the nation of Judah. It was Judah and Benjamin were the two southern tribes that uh, made up the nation of Judah. And, uh, and then there was this slow decline that led ultimately to their captivity. And ultimately, the ten northern tribes never recovered from their captivity when the Assyrians took them captive in 722 B.C., the two southern tribes in 586 BC were conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and they were dragged off into captivity for 70 years in Babylon, and Jerusalem was destroyed. It was laid waste. And so, uh, you know, God worked with these people. He worked with this nation. He was always sending them prophets. He was sending them his ministers to try and call them back to himself. And yet uh, they, in the end, they would not have him. They desired to worship the gods of the nations. Now this led to uh, this terrible practice of human sacrifice. And, you know, human sacrifice is something, guys, that still takes place around the world. I mean, we think about it, oh, this is 4,000 years ago. It was in the Bible times. It still happens today. As a matter of fact, Satanists who are true Satanists, they still practice human sacrifice. It's, of course, it's illegal. It's not uh, public. Uh, but uh, anybody that's ever ministered to anyone or heard a testimony of anyone that's come out of Satanism, uh, they still offer child sacrifice to Satan today. And they drink the blood of the children. Uh, because they get power. They believe they get power with, with Satan from offering the sacrifice of children. Uh, and so it's, it's something that's still around today. Uh, I remember when I was in Africa, when I was in Uganda, it's a terrible problem in East Africa. Human sacrifice is still uh, happening in Africa uh, because this is what they've, a lot of these tribal peoples, this is what they've always done. They're very primitive uh, and they're out there in the bush away from everybody else. And there's these witch doctors and everybody's afraid of the spirits that are over this, these areas. And so they'll give their children to appease these demons or these spirits. And so human sacrifice uh, is still taking place today, tragically. Uh, but Israel, you know, they knew better. They had God's law. They had Moses. Uh, they had the prophets. God sent them prophets. And yet they uh, still turned away from God, and turned and worshipped idols. Uh, 
and demons. It is interesting that uh, in uh, the tells, uh, the archaeological digs in northern Israel up in Dan, uh, they have found in the, in the old houses that are 3,500-year-old uh, uh, buildings that they've dug up, they've excavated, they found inside the walls of these houses in Dan, the northern tribe of Israel, babies that were encased in clay jars that were put inside the walls of the houses, these, these infants inside of jars built into the houses. That was a practice at that time to bring a blessing of these false gods upon the house. They would offer their firstborn child uh, as a sacrifice, put the baby in a jar, strangle it, put it in a jar, and then build it into the house so that they would have prosperity. This was happening in Israel uh, uh, during this time that's being recorded here for us in Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, moral decay uh, was taking place and paganism, all driven by materialism, sexual lust, sexual promiscuity. Uh, they worshipped Molech. Molech was the god of pleasure. Molech was the god that often they offered their children to as a human sacrifice. They worshipped Astoreth. Astoreth was the goddess of fertility or of sexual immorality and lust. Uh, sexual pleasure. They worshiped the god Mammon. Mammon was the god of money or of possessions or of wealth, and that always equals power because money equals power. Uh, and so they would worship Mammon and they would worship Baal or Baal, as we read earlier. And he was the god that they believed would give them bountiful crops with their agriculture uh, and with the weather patterns to keep them from having droughts and famines. And, you know, we think of it as all superstitious today, but they really believed this at the time, that if they would offer their children to these gods or worship these gods, uh, that they would then prosper financially, they would have a better crop, or their livestock would produce more offspring, they'd have more children to work the land, and so forth. And so it was all related to materialism, it was related to pleasure, it was related to money, it was related to power, it was related to lust, it was related to sex. And guys, we're no different today in America. You know, we were a nation that God called out of Europe, of England. Our founding fathers came here so that they could worship God freely. The pilgrims came from uh, England so that they didn't have to capitulate to the Church of England and yield to the King of England. They wanted to worship God according to the dictates of their own heart, according to their own conscience, according to the Word of God. They came here so they'd have the freedom to worship God. They established this nation as a truly Christian nation. Our founding fathers prayerfully enshrined with prayer and fasting the Constitution and gave us uh, our rights that we have as citizens of this country, uh, primarily the right to practice our religion, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. All of these were to protect us so that we could do this, so that we could worship God without the interference of the state. 
when uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote about the separation of church and state, it was simply to keep the state out of the church's business, to keep the state from meddling with the church, not to separate the state from the church to say that you can't be a Christian and be in a public position of office or be a Christian publicly in the public schools or be a Christian in your workplace. That was never the, the founder's intention with the separation powers of church and state. It was so that we wouldn't become like England, where a church would control or the state would control the church or a church would control the state like in Rome. And everybody would be forced to just, you know, uh, worship in one way. And so uh, we uh, are just as guilty as Israel today. Uh, we have, as a nation have forsaken God. We are those who are as a nation not pursuing God. We're not interested in the word of God. We don't care about the things of God. Uh, we are just like Israel of old. We're in it for ourselves. We want power. We want money. We worship possessions. We worship sex and lust and glamorize all sorts of sexual promiscuity uh, in our culture. And we want prosperity. We want affluence and wealth. And so really, we're, we're, we're no different than Israel, no different than Judah was uh, at that time. And so the voice of the prophet, the cry of the prophet, is always to repent, to turn back to God, to return to him, and to redo the things that you did at first. Come back to me, God says. Come back to your first love and do the things that you did at first, and I will heal you, and I will restore you, and I will save you. But you must agree with God. We must agree with God that we need to turn back to Him. And we can't save the United States of America. Uh, we can't save the state of California. But we can certainly put God first in our lives as the Christians who live in the United States of America, the Bible-believing Christians, the remnant, as it were, who continues to seek the Lord. And for the sake even of the small remnant, God said, uh, he left to us a very small remnant. Isaiah spoke through, uh, God spoke through Isaiah in verse 9 of chapter 1. So too, God has shown deference and mercy to our nation because of the small remnant that we still have in our country who put God first and who will not compromise no matter what is politically correct no matter what the popular opinion polls say no matter what the talk show hosts are saying or what's on the media or what's in the movies or what's on the television we will not bow to Baal we will not turn away from God we will continue to seek the Lord and to seek to put him first as his people and as we do this Amen. As we do this, God will bless our nation and he will bless us as individuals. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, very familiar passage. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. So you notice it's not, the charge is not to all the unbelievers out there, all the other people that are outside the church. The charge is to us, my people who are called by my name. Do you call yourself a Christian today? That's God's name. It's Christ's name. So you're, you've got the name of Christ on you. So we now 
are God's people who are called by this His name. Evening's and message he says, if is my going people to be more of who are called an, by my name uh, will humble themselves and pray and seek and so my we're face. Not, this is planning to repentance, get very far. Returning, so don't worry if I only revival. get through one or two verses. It doesn't They'll mean turn I'm from their wicked ways. Then I will hear Jesus from heaven. Returns. I will forgive their uh, sins. It won't be like that every night. But because we're starting a new book. Uh, I like to kind of do a little bit of background, and so we're not planning to get very far tonight, but then we'll kind of uh, pick up uh, the pace next week. So Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1, we read, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So, Isaiah, the name Isaiah means literally Yahweh or uh, the Lord is salvation. Yahweh is salvation is what his name means. Beautiful name, very strong name, uh, very similar to the name of Jesus, Yeshua. Uh, Jehovah is salvation. And uh Isaiah is an interesting book. It has 66 chapters, a very long book. It's certainly the longest book of prophecy in the Bible. Uh, and it's uh, the first of the major uh, prophets, the longer prophets that wrote in the Bible. Uh, 66 chapters, and it's broken down really into two segments or sections. The first 39 chapters deal with God's judgment, as we're going to see. His wrath, His law, and His judgment against His people, Israel or Judah, for their disobedience to Him. The first 39 chapters. The second section of 27 chapters uh, is really about comfort and hope and uh, redemption and the coming of the Messiah. And so really in Isaiah, you have almost a miniature outline of the whole Bible because the Bible itself is 66 books. It's 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. And so uh, likely not a coincidence that God inspired uh, the book of Isaiah to, to be uh, broken down like this. 66 chapters, the first 39 correspond to the Old Testament law and judgment of God upon sin. And the last 27 chapters, the comfort, the hope, and the redemption of the coming Messiah. Now, Isaiah records many specific prophecies pertaining to Jesus Christ. Probably, again, more prophecies in this uh, book about Jesus than any of the other prophets. Uh, he talks about the birth of the Messiah, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, through the virgin. Isaiah 7, uh, 14, the virgin will conceive and be with child. Uh, he talks about the life and the ministry of the coming Messiah, the substitutionary death, the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, uh, details Jesus' life, his ministry, and his crucifixion, his death, uh, substitutionary atonement, dying for the sins of the nation, the sins of others, and then living again and, and being raised uh, after he is killed. All of this is in the book of Isaiah. So, uh, Isaiah also speaks about the last days. He speaks about the tribulation period and the day of the Lord. Uh, he speaks about the coming messianic kingdom and about the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. All of this is included in Isaiah's prophecy. So you could see why it's a good parallel to the Bible uh, as a whole. 
The book of Isaiah was written over a period of at least 40 years, the scholars say, probably longer than that, probably actually closer to 60 years was his ministry. Um, he started his prophecy approximately 740 or 739 BC uh, under the uh, reign of uh, Uzziah, the king of, Is uh, the king of Judah. And he prophesied at least through 681 BC, where the uh, son of the Assyrian king Sennacherib, named Asarhaddon, uh, was made the king of Assyria. And we know from history that that took place upon Sennacherib's death in 639 BC. So Isaiah was still ministering at that time. And so this is a very long life. It's a very full life. He uh, uh, ministered during the reign of four kings, more than really any other prophet in the Bible, four different kings of Judah. He was uh, their advisor and their prophet to the kings uh, of Judah. There are many direct quotes from Isaiah in the New Testament, at least 66 direct quotes in the New Testament directly from the book of Isaiah that are quoted in the New Testament. Uh, it's quoted in 20 out of the 27 books. The book of Isaiah is quoted and 20 out of the 27 books in the New Testament. And Jesus quoted numerous times from the book of Isaiah. And so it is, it is a very rich book, and uh, it's a very exciting book, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, our study here on Wednesday evenings. So again, back in verse 1 of Isaiah 1, we read the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now, this is not Amos. It's a different Hebrew word. Amos was the name of one of the prophets of God, but he is not the son of Amos, the prophet from the book of Amos. Amos is likely, at least according to Jewish rabbinical tradition, likely the brother of King Amaziah, who was the father, King Amaziah, was the father of King Uzziah. And so if indeed the rabbinical uh, Jewish writings are correct, and they probably are uh, with their history, uh, if indeed Isaiah is the son of the brother of the king, that would make him a first cousin of King Uzziah. And so he's of the tribe of Judah. He's of the line of David the Messianic uh, uh, family, uh, and he is uh, the first cousin of the king of Judah. And so he had a very close relationship to this king, and he had a relationship, a very close relationship to all four of the kings that are mentioned here uh, in verse 1. And uh, he was a member then of the royal family. He served as a prophet of God to four successive kings, beginning with Uzziah, and he was a prophet to the southern nation of Judah and to the holy city of Jerusalem. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, this was the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, comprised the two southern tribes that made up the nation uh, or the kingdom of Judah. And of course, uh, this was the uh, messianic line. This was the line that Jesus would come through, the line of Judah. 
And, uh, and then there were the 10 northern tribes. The nations uh, of Israel was split uh, at one point in their history. And then you had the nation of Israel in the north. You had the nation of Judah in the south. They were often at odds with each other, often at war with each other. Um, and so he was a prophet to the southern kingdom uh, of Judah. Now, the first king here that we're going to uh, look at briefly that he is referencing is King Uzziah. Now, Uzziah, the story of, of Uzziah's life is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. If you want to flip back there, I'm going to turn there in a minute. 2 Chronicles chapter 26. But King Uzziah, as we're going to see, was a good king. He reigned for 52 years, longer than any other king in Judah's history. And uh, Judah was very prosperous under the reign of good King Uzziah. He was a righteous king. Uh, he uh, uh, encouraged the people to serve the Lord. He uh, did not tolerate uh, the idol worship in the land. Uh, he was someone who wanted to please God. Now, he sinned later in his life, as we're going to see here in a minute, because he was just a man. Uh, but Judah prospered under the reign of this good king and this good man. And no doubt Isaiah had a lot to do uh, with King Uzziah's righteous reign. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26 and verse 1, we read this concerning the record of Uzziah the king. Now all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. Verse 3 says, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecoilah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God, and as long as he sought the Lord God made him prosper. Very interesting. When you study the kings of the Old Testament, you see that refrain over and over again. If the kings were good kings and they sought God and they sought to please God, uh, God blessed them and he blessed their kingdom and he blessed the people under the kingdom of the reign of this king. Uh, if a king turned away from God and turned to worship the false gods, as was common uh, in Israel and also among some of the kings of Judah, that would bring God's judgment upon the nation. It would be difficult for them. They would be attacked and beaten by their enemies and so forth. But Uzziah was a good king. And it says, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. Uh, much like what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, that if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, put God first in everything, seek him first in his righteousness, then all these other things will be added unto you. So really, we can't control the circumstances of our lives. We can't control the actions of other people, but we're responsible for ourselves to seek the Lord and put God first. And as we seek God first and we put his kingdom as our priority, make it the preeminent focus of our lives, God promises that he'll take care of all of the other needs that come up in our life. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So if you seek to please God, 
God will bless you. He will take care of you. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. These are spiritual laws. And so we're going to see this here with these kings as well. He was a good king. He sought the Lord. And as long as he sought the Lord, God caused him and the nation to prosper. Now, as the leader goes of the nation, so goes the people. So goes the nation. Uh, they were strong because he was a strong king. They were very strong politically. They were very strong economically. And they were very strong militarily. They had victory over their enemies. Uh, they uh, fortified the cities uh, in Judah. And they prospered uh, economically under uh, King Uzziah. Now, he was just a man, and so the Bible records his failings as well, uh, and he did sin grievously toward the end of his reign, and he ended up paying a tremendous price, a very heavy price for his sin. He actually uh, was puffed up with pride because of his success and because of his prosperity and his power, and he decided that he wanted to go into the temple and to offer incense before God, which was forbidden to anyone except for the priests. The kings were not allowed to go into the temple and to uh, offer sacrifices. Only the priests were allowed to do this. And so uh, Uzziah uh, disobeyed God. He sinned and he was struck as a result. He was struck with leprosy. We read in verse 16 of 2 Chronicles 26, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And this was a big no-no, very clearly defined in the law of Moses that the kings were not permitted to do this. So this was pure uh, arrogance and pride, thinking that he was above the law, that he could go and do this because he was such a successful king. But nobody is above the law, and he was not above the law. And so the priests had to uh, confront him, and then he got angry when they confronted him, and uh, he was struck with leprosy by God. We read in verse 20, And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get him out, because the Lord struck him. Verse 21, King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, wrote. And so we are... In the book of Isaiah, but Isaiah is the one who is being referred to here in Second Chronicles chapter 26. Uh, and, uh, and so we're going to get some more uh, about uh, Uzziah later in the book of Isaiah. But uh, needless to say, he was not the exception to the rule. He was not above the law of God, and he was smitten as a result of his disobedience. He's still recorded as a good king. He's still remembered uh, as a good king, and no doubt he was heavily influenced by the ministry of the prophet Isaiah. Now, the next king was his son, as we just read, King uh, Jotham. This was Uzziah's son. He was a good king. He was also faithful to the Lord, and he was prosperous as a king. 
Now, when Uzziah was struck with leprosy and he had to be isolated because leprosy was very contagious and so they couldn't uh, allow him to really be among the people. And so he was taken and put into isolation for approximately 15 years. And as he was there in isolation, he wasn't really allowed or permitted to go out among the people to rule the kingdom. And so he brought his son in, Jotham, as a co-regent with him to rule over the land. So it's one of the rare exceptions where you actually have two kings ruling at the same time. You had uh, Uzziah, who was still the king, but he was isolated because of his leprosy. And Jotham became his co-regent and became uh, also uh, a joint uh, king with him at that time until his father died. When his father died, then Jotham became the king, uh, but he really only reigned for about a year after uh, his father Uzziah had died. We read concerning Jotham in chapter 27, verse 1, Jotham was 25 years old when he became the king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerushaha, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done, although he did not enter the temple of the Lord. But still, the people acted corruptly. And that's important to note that uh, the people were already beginning to stray. They were already beginning to desire to go after other gods, the false gods of the pagan religions and the pagan gods of the nations around them. But he was a good king. He was very successful. We read in verse 6, So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. So you have that same sort of refrain as the record. He put God first. He became mighty. Why? Because he prepared his ways before the Lord. He put the Lord first. And guys, you could never go wrong when you put God first. You'll, you'll, always, you'll always succeed. Even if you seemingly fail in this life or you seemingly fail in this world, if you put God first, you'll always come out ahead. You'll always come out on top because it's better to please God than to worry about pleasing man. And this king was a good king. Uh, he followed after the Lord. Now, the next king, who was his son, is King Ahaz. And King Ahaz was a wicked king. We read this concerning Ahaz in chapter 28, verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, as his father David had done. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and made molded images for the Baals, or the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and he burned his children in the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel." And he sacrificed and he burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And so this king departed from his father and his grandfather's heritage and he turned and he went after other gods. Not only did he go after the other gods and he made uh, images of, of the other gods to be worshipped, 
But then he entered into human sacrifice. Not only did he uh, enter into human sacrifice, we're told that he sacrificed his own children in the fire. And so this is just an unbelievable thing. You would think, why would anybody do this? Well, uh, they were very uh, um, uh, lustful for power. And they were very superstitious. And they believed these pagan religions and these pagan gods that were worshipped, uh, they believed that if you offered human sacrifices, you offered human blood, especially the innocent blood of a child, that you would get power from these gods. Power militarily, power economically, power with uh, the, the fertility of your, of your land and your crops and so forth. And uh, so it was, it was a terrible thing what he did. He turned the people away from worshiping Yahweh or Jehovah, the Holy One of Israel. And because he was a wicked king, he brought judgment upon the people. Because as goes the leader, so goes the nation. And that is very true throughout history. When you have good, godly men and women in leadership of a nation or of a city or of a state, you have blessings that come upon that nation or upon that people. When you have wicked leaders, you have difficulty and trials and, and troubles and calamities and catastrophe that comes against you. It's just, uh, it's a law that cannot be broken. And so he uh, uh, brought judgment upon the nation. He suffered numerous military defeats. Even though he was wealthy, he had inherited, inherited tremendous wealth from his father and his grandfather uh, and, and a lot of power. Uh, but it, he turned away from God and he brought judgment upon himself. They were defeated militarily. Uh, they lost many of the walled cities throughout Judah to the Assyrians who uh, had conquered the northern tribe of Israel in 722 BC. Uh, then the Assyrians, after they conquered and they carried uh, the ten northern tribes of Israel away into captivity, then the Assyrians came to the southern tribe of Judah and began to besiege uh, and, and, uh, and attack cities in Judah. And so many of the walled cities in Judah fell to the enemies of God. At one point, 200,000 women and children were actually taken captive by the nation of Israel uh, before Israel fell, and they were carried away to the north uh, as a result of, again, this king's wickedness. So he brought judgment upon uh, his own people. Now, uh, did he repent? Did he turn back to God? Absolutely not. The record is that he just continued to go headlong uh, after apostasy and idol worship. We read in verse 22 of 2 Chronicles 28. Now, in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. That is, that King Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which he had defeated him, or which had defeated him, rather, saying, Because of the gods of the kings of Syria, uh, because the gods of the kings of Syria help them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. 
And in every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. And so even though he had suffered calamity, he'd suffered militarily, uh, he'd suffered economically, he didn't turn back to the God of his fathers. He just doubled down on worshiping the false gods. As a matter of fact, you see his reasoning, his logic. He says that he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus uh, because they had defeated him. So he thought, well, if the gods of the kings of Syria help them, I will sacrifice to them and maybe they will help me. And of course, uh, it did not turn out well uh, for Ahaz. Now, the fourth king is a good king. And remember, these are all kings that Isaiah ministered to and that his prophecy was written during their reign and, and during their, their kingdoms. Uh, and so the fourth king was a good king. This is King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the son of Ahaz. And he was a, a righteous king. Now, chapters uh, 36 through 39 in the book of Isaiah, which we'll get to you know, down the road, um, speak about Hezekiah and about the Assyrians coming to besiege Jerusalem and how God delivered uh, Jerusalem and delivered Judah from this massive army, this powerful army of the Assyrians that were on their doorstep. Uh, and, and the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers and just basically obliterated their army to where Judah didn't even have to fight. They didn't have to, they couldn't have, they couldn't have def defended themselves against this army. But they cried out to God. Hezekiah, uh, at the, uh, encouragement of the prophet Isaiah, recorded for us in Isaiah chapters 36 through 39, he sought the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He pleaded with the Lord as the king. He humbled himself. The nation of Judah humbled themselves before God and God delivered them from a massive army, from a massive powerful enemy that they never could have defeated on their own. And so Hezekiah uh, was a wonderful king, a godly man. We read concerning Hezekiah in chapter 29 of 2 Chronicles, verse 1. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Remember, his father had shut down the temple. His father Ahaz had shut the temple down, shut down the house of the Lord and cut up all of the uh, articles that were used in God's house. Uh, and, and so he's now restoring all of this. So one of the first things he, he does as a new king, he opens the doors of the house of the Lord and he repaired them. Verse four, then he brought in the priests and the Levites and he gathered them in the east square and he said to them, hear me, Levites. Now sanctify yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. This would have been the stuff that Ahaz had brought in to worship the false gods. 
For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him. They have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your eyes. Verse 9, For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. Good king, turning back to God, and God is going to bless the nation of Judah as a result. It's the same pattern over and over again. If the king is righteous and the leader is good, then God blesses the nation and blesses uh, his kingdom and his reign. Hezekiah uh, came in and immediately began to uh, bring in reforms, uh, to institute political reforms, to restore uh, the worship of God, to restore the temple of God, the priesthood, the Levites, uh, to restore the sacrificial systems, the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Uh, he began to restore all of the festivals that were uh, ordered and commanded and prescribed by God in the law of Moses that the kings were supposed to do this, the uh, different festivals of Israel. And uh, he actually uh, reinstated uh, the Passover and the celebration of the Feast of Passover like no other king before him uh, had done. And so he turned the nation back to God. He began to punish wickedness and he began to wipe out uh, idolatry and those who are worshiping the other gods that his father uh, had worshiped and brought in. He was encouraging and he was promoting obedience to God's commandments and to God's law and to his ordinances. Uh, he was a righteous king. Now, his son, whose name uh, is Manasseh, now Manasseh is not mentioned in Isaiah as being one of the kings that Isaiah ministered to, uh, just the other four kings that we just looked at. But Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, uh, was actually the most vile and wicked king in all of Judah's history. And so you just, you just don't quite understand why people do what they do. You know, you think that they would learn. But uh, then again, you know, we're, we're probably not much different ourselves than these, these guys. Uh, why do we do a lot of things that we do? We know better. And, uh, and so we, we really can't cast stones, but the record is here for us to learn from. And Manasseh was a terribly wicked king. He took the nation of Judah into wholesale pagan worship and idolatry and human sacrifice. Uh, he put the prophets of God to death. Uh, he, he killed them. And so uh, according to tradition, he murdered Isaiah. He's the one that killed Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah didn't die a natural death according to the uh, traditions and the, uh, the non-biblical history of the Jews. But he uh, 
killed Isaiah, according to tradition, by tying him between two wooden posts or poles and sawing him in half while he was alive to make an example of what would happen if you tried to worship God uh, anymore. And so it is very likely, uh, again, according to the Jewish tradition, that this is the one who was referred to in the book of Hebrews when it's talking about the Old Testament saints who suffered uh, for God's sake in Hebrews chapter 11. I'll read to you here real quick. Hebrews 11 verse 35, we read, The women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. And so it's believed that the author of Hebrews is referring to what was known among the Jews, what happened to Isaiah under the reign of the evil king Manasseh. He was sawn in half uh, for his faith. They were sawn in two. They were tempted or tested. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens, and in caves of the earth. And so um, we don't we don't know for sure because the Bible doesn't tell us that that's what happened. But it is it is a very strong possibility uh, that Isaiah was martyred, that he didn't die a natural death and. Uh, li live out his years on the earth. His life was cut short. And the Bible says that all who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so it shouldn't surprise us when various trials and fiery trials assault us as Christians. It should not confound us. It shouldn't surprise us. Um, there are many godly men and women who have suffered greatly, even suffered to death for their faith in God and their faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, Jesus said in this world, uh, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so we know that uh, this world is not all that there is. It's not the end. Even if we were to be martyred and lose our lives for uh, our witness and our testimony for Jesus Christ, the Bible says we will have a better resurrection. Those who are martyred for Jesus will have a better resurrection in eternity uh, because of their sacrifice here for him now. So back to Isaiah chapter 1, <clears throat> and again in verse 1, <clears throat> and I'm just going to read 18 verses here so that you kind of get the context of this first prophecy. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, 
children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward, or they have backslidden. Verse 5, why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so uh, this, is, this is a great kind of introduction here in Isaiah chapter 1 and kickoff uh, of, of what this message is going to be the, to the nation of Israel. It really is a corrective uh, sort of a, of a book to uh, the children of Israel there in Judah. And, uh, and God uh, is rebuking them. God is calling them out for their wickedness and for their disobedience, their rebellion and their sin. And yet he's calling them to salvation. He's calling them to come back to him and to return, uh, as it were, to their first love. We're going to get into more of this, uh, what we just read next week, but I just wanted to get the overview there uh, this evening. Now, verse 2, again, says this, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Apparently, at this point, when Isaiah was writing this, and, and it was perhaps uh, under King Ahaz's reign when he wrote this prophecy because of the description, um, that it is... Uh, 
possible that they were uh, basically saying, well, since no one else is listening to me, the king's not listening to me, the people aren't listening to me, uh, Isaiah says, I'm going to talk to the heavens. I'm going to shout to the heavens and to the earth because my people are not listening to my voice. Uh, and so he says, hear, O heavens, and all the host of heaven would be included there, all the angels and the angelic realm, uh, and give ear, O earth. Since Judah wouldn't listen to God, uh, God has Isaiah crying out uh, to the heavens to hear this message. He says, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Uh, this is a uh, tragedy of Israel's legacy. Uh, God says, I've nourished you. I've brought you up as children, as my own children. And if you look at the history of the nation of Israel, uh, there was never a people like Israel that God called unto himself and, and how God worked with Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years to try and bring a people to himself so that they could know uh, the God who created the heavens and the earth. All the other pagans were worshiping false gods. They were worshiping demons and devils. And, and, and yet God uh, called a man. He called Abram and called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, called him out of the idolatry of Babylon and called him to a land, he says, which I will show you a land which will be flowing with milk and honey that I will give to your descendants after you for an everlasting, for an eternal possession. And he took Abraham and he started with Abraham and, and called out the nation of Israel through the man Abraham. He then uh, preserved the nation when they went into Egypt for 400 years into a foreign land under a foreign king, the Pharaoh, uh, during the famine in Jacob's day. God preserved and blessed the nation of Israel for 400 years. They prospered. They were so prolific in, in uh, Egypt that the Egyptians began to become threatened uh, by the power and the strength and the numbers of the uh, Israelites. And that was God's blessing upon the nation of Israel. Uh, the Pharaoh then tried to uh, kill all the baby boys and was basically planning to eradicate uh, the nation of Israel through genocide. If you kill all the baby boys in 50 or 100 years, you won't have any people left. They're, all the girls are going to marry Egyptian men. They're going to have Egyptian kids, and that would be the end of the nation of Israel. And so uh, God raised up a man. He raised up Moses, who would come and who would deliver God's people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, bringing the judgments of God down with power in the eyes of everyone, in the, in the eyes of Pharaoh, in the eyes of the Egyptians, and in the eyes of his people Israel, to show his love for Israel. And he took them out of the bondage of the slavery of Egypt, and he brought them uh, into the wilderness. He sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness of Sinai. Their shoes didn't ever wear out. They had manateed every day uh, that was there. All they had to do was go out and collect the manna. They had food. They had water that came forth from the rocks. And God provided for them. He had a cloud to cover them uh, by the heat of the day so they weren't burned with the sun. And he brought a pillar of fire by night so that they would be safe and they'd have light and have warmth and be protected during the cold nights uh, there in the Sinai Peninsula in the wilderness for 40 years. God took care of his people, the children of Israel, because he loved them. 
Then God raised up the man Joshua. And Joshua took Israel across the Jordan River to conquer the land of promise or the promised land, the land that God promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And it was a land truly that was flowing with milk and honey. God says, you're going to go in and you're going to eat from food that you didn't plant. You're going to live in houses that you didn't build and dwell in cities that you have not built because I'm giving this to you. This is the promised land. And so God was always there fulfilling his promises to Israel, his covenantal promises, his love for his children. They were his children, Israel. For 400 years, God ruled over Israel through the judges. And uh, really, Israel was initially, as a government, it was a theocracy. And a theocracy is a government that is ruled by God. Theos is God, and the uh, autocratic or the ocracy would speak of the government. And he ruled over his people, a theocracy. Now, he used, typically, he had a man in, in place. It was, you know, either Abraham, or it was Moses, or it was Joshua, or it was one of the judges. Uh, and God worked through uh, the judges, or through the, the people that he put in charge, and God was the, the king. God was the ruler over Israel. They didn't have a king like the other nations. But under the prophecy of Samuel and the, and the time when Samuel was the judge, the people came to Samuel and said, give us a king like the nations around us. They were not content to have God ruling over them. They wanted a man to rule over them, just like all of the other pagan nations. And that was really uh, kind of uh, the beginning of of their downfall, really, if you look at their long history, because they no longer wanted God to be uh, their their king ruling over them. Uh, God was still merciful. He gave them what they asked for. He told Samuel, don't be offended, Samuel. They're not uh, mad at you. They're mad at me. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. He said, they are rejecting me. Give them a king. And so Samuel, of course, ordained and anointed King Saul, who became the first uh, king of Israel. Uh, after Saul king, King David, who was a man after God's own heart. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, who wrote the majority of the Psalms in our Bible. David, certainly not a perfect man. He was a human, but he was a godly man. He was a righteous man. He loved God and he uh, sought the Lord with his whole heart. Under David, the 12 tribes of Israel were a united nation. They were a united kingdom under David. Uh, they dominated their enemies militarily. Uh, he ruled with a strong rule politically, and they prospered and they flourished economically under the good king David. Now, when David died, his son Solomon took over his kingdom, and he inherited a lot of the blessings that David had put into place. Solomon, of course, built the, the temple of God. The temple of God was uh, before that in a tabernacle, a temporary sort of a tent. And, uh, and, and David wanted to build a temple for God, but God did not allow him to. So Solomon, his son, built the temple of God. Uh, it was, you know, one of the most beautiful ancient buildings in the ancient world. It was one of the seven great ancient wonders of the world, historians tell us. And, uh, and Solomon was the most powerful and the most wealthy king in the world at that time, and really in all of Israel's history, uh, because he inherited the blessings from his father David. And yet, Solomon, who had all of these blessings, all of this power, and all of this wealth, 
turned away from God and began to worship other gods. He took many wives, 700 wives and concubines, uh, married them for political reasons, making political alliances with all the nations around him so that he would uh, increase trade with those nations and so that he would not go to war with those nations. And in this, he disobeyed God. God uh, commanded the kings not to multiply wives, not to multiply horses, and not to multiply gold. And yet Solomon did all the things God commanded the kings not to do. He multiplied horses, he multiplied gold, and he multiplied wives, like no king before him and really no king uh, after him. And the wives of Solomon turned Solomon away from worshiping God and turned him to worshiping idols and to worship the false gods of the pagans because they brought their pagan gods with them. They came from Egypt or they came from other places and they brought their gods with them, these wives of Solomon. And then they wanted to worship their gods in Jerusalem. So Solomon eventually gave in. He capitulated to keep his wives happy and he allowed them to build temples or to build altars to worship their gods. And that was really the introduction of pagan idolatry into the nation of Israel. Again, it came from the king. It started with the head and then it dispersed throughout the nation and really, uh, idolatry never really went away after the time of Solomon. It would kind of wane at different times under good kings, but it would always uh, come back. But God was still working with the nation of Israel. Even after the nation was divided upon Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam took the throne, uh, and then the nation, the ten northern tribes rebelled, uh, and uh, Jeroboam became the king of the ten northern tribes. They called themselves Israel. The two southern tribes became uh, the nation of Judah. It was Judah and Benjamin were the two southern tribes that uh, made up the nation of Judah. And, uh, and then there was this slow decline that led ultimately to their captivity. And ultimately, the ten northern tribes never recovered from their captivity when the Assyrians took them captive in 722 B.C., the two southern tribes in 586 BC were conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and they were dragged off into captivity for 70 years in Babylon, and Jerusalem was destroyed. It was laid waste. And so, uh, you know, God worked with these people. He worked with this nation. He was always sending them prophets. He was sending them his ministers to try and call them back to himself. And yet uh, they, in the end, they would not have him. They desired to worship the gods of the nations. Now this led to uh, this terrible practice of human sacrifice. And, you know, human sacrifice is something, guys, that still takes place around the world. I mean, we think about it, oh, this is 4,000 years ago. It was in the Bible times. It still happens today. As a matter of fact, Satanists who are true Satanists, they still practice human sacrifice. It's, of course, it's illegal. It's not uh, public. Uh, but uh, anybody that's ever ministered to anyone or heard a testimony of anyone that's come out of Satanism, uh, they still offer child sacrifice to Satan today. And they drink the blood of the children. Uh, because they get power. They believe they get power with, with Satan from offering the sacrifice of children. Uh, and so it's, it's something that's still around today. Uh, I remember when I was in Africa, when I was in Uganda, it's a terrible problem in East Africa. Human sacrifice is still uh, happening in Africa uh, because this is what they've, a lot of these tribal peoples, this is what they've always done. They're very primitive uh, and they're out there in the bush away from everybody else. And there's these witch doctors and everybody's afraid of the spirits that are over this, these areas. 
And so they'll give their children to appease these demons or these spirits. And so human sacrifice uh, is still taking place today, tragically. Uh, but Israel, you know, they knew better. They had God's law. They had Moses. Uh, they had the prophets. God sent them prophets. And yet they uh, still turned away from God and turned and worshipped idols and demons. It is interesting that uh, in uh, the tells, uh, the archaeological digs in northern Israel up in Dan, uh, they have found in the, in the old houses that are 3,500-year-old uh, uh, buildings that they've dug up, they've excavated, they found inside the walls of these houses in Dan, the northern tribe of Israel, babies that were encased in clay jars that were put inside the walls of the houses, these, these infants inside of jars built into the houses. That was a practice at that time to bring a blessing of these false gods upon the house. They would offer their firstborn child uh, as a sacrifice, put the baby in a jar, strangle it, put it in a jar, and then build it into the house so that they would have prosperity. This was happening in Israel uh, uh, during this time that's being recorded here for us in Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, moral decay uh, was taking place and paganism, all driven by materialism, sexual lust, sexual promiscuity. Uh, they worshipped Molech. Molech was the god of pleasure. Molech was the god that often they offered their children to as a human sacrifice. They worshipped Astareth. Astareth was the goddess of fertility or of sexual immorality and lust. Uh, sexual pleasure. They worshiped the god Mammon. Mammon was the god of money or of possessions or of wealth, and that always equals power because money equals power. Uh, and so they would worship Mammon and they would worship Baal or Baal, as we read earlier. And he was the god that they believed would give them bountiful crops with their agriculture uh, and with the weather patterns to keep them from having droughts and famines. And, you know, we think of it as all superstitious today, but they really believed this at the time, that if they would offer their children to these gods or worship these gods, uh, that they would then prosper financially, they would have a better crop, or their livestock would produce more offspring, they'd have more children to work the land, and so forth. And so it was all related to materialism, it was related to pleasure, it was related to money, it was related to power, it was related to lust, it was related to sex. And guys, we're no different today in America. You know, we were a nation that God called out of Europe, of England. Our founding fathers came here so that they could worship God freely. The pilgrims came from uh, England so that they didn't have to capitulate to the Church of England and yield to the King of England. They wanted to worship God according to the dictates of their own heart, according to their own conscience, according to the Word of God. They came here so they'd have the freedom to worship God. They established this nation as a truly Christian nation. Our founding fathers prayerfully enshrined with prayer and fasting the Constitution and gave us uh, our rights that we have as citizens of this country, uh, primarily the right to practice our religion, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. All of these were to protect us so that we could do this, so that we could worship God without the interference of the state. 
when uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote about the separation of church and state, it was simply to keep the state out of the church's business, to keep the state from meddling with the church, not to separate the state from the church to say that you can't be a Christian and be in a public position of office or be a Christian publicly in the public schools or be a Christian in your workplace. That was never the, the founder's intention with the separation powers of church and state. It was so that we wouldn't become like England, where a church would control or the state would control the church or a church would control the state like in Rome. And everybody would be forced to just, you know, uh, worship in one way. And so uh, we uh, are just as guilty as Israel today. Uh, we have, as a nation have forsaken God. We are those who are as a nation not pursuing God. We're not interested in the word of God. We don't care about the things of God. Uh, we are just like Israel of old. We're in it for ourselves. We want power. We want money. We worship possessions. We worship sex and lust and glamorize all sorts of sexual promiscuity uh, in our culture. And we want prosperity. We want affluence and wealth. And so really, we're, we're, we're no different than Israel, no different than Judah was uh, at that time. And so the voice of the prophet, the cry of the prophet, is always to repent, to turn back to God, to return to Him, and to redo the things that you did at first. Come back to me, God says. Come back to your first love and do the things that you did at first, and I will heal you, and I will restore you, and I will save you. But you must agree with God. We must agree with God that we need to turn back to Him. And we can't save the United States of America. Uh, we can't save the state of California. But we can certainly put God first in our lives as the Christians who live in the United States of America, the Bible-believing Christians, the remnant, as it were, who continues to seek the Lord. And for the sake even of the small remnant, God said, uh, he left to us a very small remnant. Isaiah spoke through, uh, God spoke through Isaiah in verse 9 of chapter 1. So too, God has shown deference and mercy to our nation because of the small remnant that we still have in our country who put God first and who will not compromise, no matter what is politically correct, no matter what the popular opinion polls say, no matter what the talk show hosts are saying or what's on the media or what's in the movies or what's on the television, we will not bow to Baal. We will not turn away from God. We will continue to seek the Lord and to seek to put him first as his people. And as we do this, Amen. As we do this, God will bless our nation and he will bless us as individuals. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, very familiar passage. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. So you notice it's not, the charge is not to all the unbelievers out there, all the other people that are outside the church. The charge is to us, my people who are called by my name. Do you call yourself a Christian today? That's God's name. It's Christ's name. So you're, you've got the name of Christ on you. So we now are God's people who are called by his name. And he says, if my people 
who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. This is repentance, returning, revival. They'll turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. 